Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's season four, episode three, and we've invited to the pod Kathy Stewart, founding member of Grammy Award winning Baroque Chamber Group Apollo's Fire. Along with playing Baroque flute in Apollo's Fire, she's currently curator of historical keyboards at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music Historical Performance Institute, an academic specialist in historical performance. Assisting in the interview with me is Alan J. Tomasetti, and checking the vibe always is Justine Sedke. We're including, as our musical interludes, short examples played by Kathy, featured on YouTube as Quant's Quickies. Kathy and I came together last year to create a series of chapters read and played from the book on playing the flute by Johann Joachim Quantz. Thanks for being in Porter Flute Pod. You'll want to take notes. Well, Kathy Stewart, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. Thank you. It's great to be here, Amy. We're just really, really interested in one of these incredibly popular composers. He was so popular that Bach, Haydn, and Mozart knew this name. And that's, I call him JJ, JJ Quantz, Johann Joachim Quantz. He started making instruments in 1739. Mm -hmm. So then by the time he was working for Frederick the Great, apparently Frederick the Great had 11 of these flutes made by Quantz. Yeah, and I, as I understand it, when Frederick the Great wanted to show you that his, his pleasure, he would gift you with one of Quantz's flutes and Quantz would have to go make another one. So he had a kind of a, a built-in job security. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting how he composed so many hundreds of flute sonatas and concertos and it, I guess that was empowering for him and, uh, you know, enough to write this book called On Playing the Flute, you know, a very principled concept, a very, I mean, there was, you shall do this and you shall not do that. And then there's this ambiguity in it as well. So that's why I brought you on the podcast to just hash it out. So talk about his flute sonatas and concertos. Why do we turn to his book, but sometimes we only know the concerto in G major? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's kind of the most popular one. Um, but there are lots of other ones. And certainly um, Frederick would have played them, Frederick the Great, and Quantz, of course, too. Um, they're all great, but that's what, that's become sort of the Mozart concerto of the Quantz concertos, the most popular one. But the others are also worth playing. And the sonatas, too. The thing is, some of the sonatas are actually really hard. They're in flat keys, which on the Baroque flute anyway, is really hard to do. Um, we can do it, but it's, we have to do all the things that it says in the Quants book to be able to play in tune when we're playing in flats. So the book becomes really relevant when you're playing these pieces on a one keyed flute. 
because a lot of things are made, shall we say, a little bit easier when you have a hundred keys on your flute, like the one that you play, as opposed to my flute, which has actually my my quants flute has two keys. <laughs> it has a D sharp key and an E flat key. You may recall that he made a big distinction between D sharp and E flat. So he provided an extra key. For our listeners, could you just briefly give us a primer again on how intonation is different on the uh, the wooden transverse flute versus our new flute? Sometimes there were different fingerings for the same note based on the key you were in because of the pitch. Yeah, because of the historical temperaments, they, they didn't use equal temperament like we use today. The modern flute's kind of designed so that it can play in equal temperament if it needs to, but it can also play in other temperaments if it wants to. But the Baroque flute, um, they had to actually cut the holes to put the notes where they needed to be in order to be kind of in tune. But some of the holes had to be had to kind of work for two different notes, like between F and E natural. So there was a little bit of tempering that happened. So sometimes the a certain note, for example, my F sharp on my Baroque flute is on the flat side and uh, my F natural is on the sharp side just because of the hole that's beside where I finger the F. Um, so that's that's one of the weird little tuning things when they, when they built the flutes. But fortunately in historical temperaments, my F sharp doesn't have to be quite as high as your F sharp normally would be on your modern flute, because let's say I'm playing in the key of D, D major. Um, the idea is we'll have a D and then we'll have an F sharp, which will be pure with D and a pure by, by pure, I mean, completely beatless. There's no beats. If you listen to a D and F sharp on the piano, you'll hear wah, 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 really wide beatings. And when you hear a D and an F sharp played in a pure intonation, there's no beating at all. And what that means is that my F sharp can be much lower, which is good because that's where it is. <laughs> now, if I'm playing in a different key and I need to play a G flat instead of an F sharp, because of the way historical temperaments work, flats are a little bit higher than sharps pitch wise. So my fingering for my G flat is a higher fingering than my fingering for my F sharp. And the same thing for G sharp versus A flat and so on, um, which is why Quants added the extra key because you could always do a different fingering for all of the so-called enharmonic notes except for E flat. And there was only one key. So you had to do it with your mouth by rolling in or out and Quants didn't trust anybody to do that. So he said, forget it, I'm gonna give you another key. So that's why we have an extra key on the quants flute for playing the difference between D sharp and E flat. Are they next to each other and only commanded by one finger? Yeah, yeah, they're right there by the pinky. Um, the E flat key is the closest one. And then there's a kind of a curved key that you reach just slightly past the E flat key to reach. So it's, it's right next door. And you have to kind of adjust your foot, foot joint so that, it's, so that you can easily reach it. Fascinating. Quant's Quickie from the classic Baroque music instruction, I'm Playing the Flute, Chapter 6 of the Use of the Tongue in Blowing Upon the Flute, Part 1. The tongue is the means by which we give animation to the execution of the notes upon the flute. Figure 1. Have you gotten any feedback from our Quants Quickies from your students? 
Yes, I have. Actually, my students have been very tickled with it. They've enjoyed it very much. Yes. <laughs> and they want to know when the next one's coming out. And I promise it'll be soon. <laughs> Tickled is a great word. I tickle my students when I read it because I was raised by a British mother who spoke the Queen's English and I learned to read, enunciate, act on stage, and it served me well later in life. And so one day I was reading out of quants because all my students will tell you, I don't yell at them. Quants yells at them. I get the book out. <laughs> And I say, okay, I'm not yelling. Quants is yelling. Are you ready? And they say, oh, sure, I'm ready. And I read some of the most acerbic language that that if you read it slowly and distinctly, you are slapped on the hand and told, don't think that you're better than the composer by putting in all those ornaments. Or if you think you're that good... (laughs) (laughs) right he starts the whole book by saying hey get off the stage if you're not good (laughs) right so I don't I couldn't read that these days I couldn't read that to the modern audience but I can read yeah right but I could read um I could read the the ornamentation chapter no problem we did articulation to start can you speak to to Quance's attitude well I think Quance was a really really good educator. He was a good teacher. I mean, and I think that he he tries to explain things really, really carefully in great detail, sometimes a lot of too much detail, but he really explains it thoroughly. And his attitude is, if you do what I say in this book and you practice, what does he say, six hours a day, then you will at least not stink. <laughs> and so therefore you have permission to play the flute. But if you're going to be lazy or if you're going to ignore what I wrote, or if you're going to just fool around, then give the flute to somebody who can play it. That's what he says. But at the same time, he's very gentle when he, he talks about what a beginner needs to do when they're practicing, how they should practice, how they should do everything um, so that they don't develop bad habits. So he's, he's a really thorough and and very thoughtful educator. He must have had a lot of students that didn't didn't do what he said or that played badly. Like, you know, he tells you to tune the high register sharp and the low register flat so you can blow lightly in the high register and blow harder in the low register. Because I think he didn't like when his students played really loud up there, you know, because then they were sharp. So he was just protecting his hearing. Now, as I start to ask you questions, I'm understanding that it gets more almost worrisome by the moment. Why does this book still relate to modern playing and practice techniques? And why do teachers still use the concept to this day in in teaching Baroque music for modern flutists? We have to just get into that. For instance, okay, there's the pitch. You just covered that. But let's talk about vibrato, right? Mm-hmm. Vibrato wasn't even in vogue until 1905. And yeah. so the precursor was the bebung, is that correct? Yes, also called flatement. Um, yeah, a lot of the people, a lot of uh, composers or um, theoreticians, so to speak, um, from the 18th century, wrote about what they called flatement or bebung, which is a finger vibrato. 
So instead of using the air to create vibrato the way we do on the modern flute, they would do it with a fingering. So if you, for example, if you were fingering a G, bear in mind that these are open holes, not holes with keys on them. You can't do it on the modern flute. <laughs> but if you're fingering a G, you can wave your finger against the edge of the hole just below it and create a kind of vibrato and you can speed it up and you can slow it down. And they actually wrote fingering charts for flatement or, or bebung. Yeah, so they actually showed you how to do it, sort of like a trill fingering chart. Now, Quantz did not. He did not write a fingering chart for Flatimal, but he does make a reference to it, um, a real specific place that he tells you about where to use it, which is very interesting about how when you make a, you, you do a mesa de voce, you start pianissimo, and then you crescendo, and then later on you diminuendo, and then you use your finger on the nearest open hole to create a little Flatimal. It's quite lovely, but he doesn't give us a fingering chart or make any other reference to vibrato, unfortunately. All right, Kathy, let's just go there. There are people who have used vibrato for length. There are people, musicians, Pablo Casals, Rampal, Galway, myself. We've used this tool as an emotional tool. We've used vibrato as an emotional tool in our Bach. Have we yeah. destroyed everything or is do you think it's... It's just okay because it's beautiful, right? And we, we deserve to, to progress as a, a culture, right? Of course. Well, you know, at the time, in the Baroque period, I would say since vibrato was not the norm, if, if you heard a flute player playing with vibrato, they would think, well, that person's really, really nervous and doesn't sound very good. However, today <laughs> we expect to hear vibrato out of our modern flutes. We don't expect to hear straight tone. Like if you listen to a clarinet player, um, it's kind of, you know, 50-50. A lot of clarinet players play with a straight tone and you don't care. You don't think, oh gosh, where's the vibrato? Or if you hear a little bit of vibrato coming out of a clarinet, you think it's quite lovely. But when you hear a modern flute, um, if it's playing with a straight tone and absolutely no vibrato, it probably is going to sound like a beginner. <laughs> we do, so we, it's part of the tone that we expect to hear. So I'm not thinking at all that when you play, if I play a box sonata on a modern flute, I will use vibrato. I might use it a little differently than I do if I'm playing the Nielsen Flute Concerto, but I might use, you know, and I certainly will use it as expressively as I can. And, you know, at all of the really expressive moments, I'll intensify the vibrato. Just know common musical sense so I don't think that playing with vibrato on the modern flute in any way makes us less stylistic we can still play stylistic stylistically um, by following other things that are in the book for example articulation stuff ornamentation ideas phrasing etc yes um, we're getting into that we're getting into that vibrato is okay <laughs> well gosh that's that's very, it's a relief. <laughs> you feel better. <laughs> well, here's how I teach it, Kathy, and I'd like your opinion. I say that vibrato has three different placements. In the front, like the Nielsen Concerto, Hebert Concerto, mm -hmm. at its moments, right? Those big, big moments, it needs in your face, right up front in the sound vibrato. The middle of the sound for vibrato could be for Poulenc Sonata for a fantasy opening note, something like that. And then for your Bach Sonata, you'd put the vibrato way in the back for Mar Marin Marais, 
La Folia, you could put the vibrato way in the back. And if it comes into the sound at all, it, it would be just a light wave of the vocal folds. Yeah. Do you agree with the placement that you can actually place vibrato in sound? Absolutely. So, great. And we can make our, our classical and Baroque music sound a little more effective and affected. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're playing a box sonata and, and you, like for the, for example, the first movement of the E minor flute sonata, and you have kind of constant slow 16th notes, if you have vibrato that's in any way in the front, it's going to sound almost like an organ going wah, 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 And we don't like that. So, no. so instead you have it on the back, back part of the sound and you, and when you get to a long note, then you might let it, let it out a little bit more. So, so sir, I completely agree with you about the placement. And when you have a long note, you can let it out a little more. What Absolutely. great advice. <laughs> you can let it out. You can, and I mean, Quance even tells us to do that. He says we can do that. Okay. You brought up tempo and time relationships. So the tempi of the Baroque and classical time is in a fight with the metronome <laughs> because I think we should be thinking a little faster for slow movements, a little slower for fast movements and get away from the numbers because the meter and, you know, the relationship between each movement is what we should be talking about. Not this is the tempo of this movement. And then this is the tempo of this movement because Allegro doesn't mean Allegro anymore. Right. Right. Allegro means happy. And sometimes, sometimes happy is not too fast <laughs> and sometimes happy is fast. So it's, there's not just one allegro and there's not just one adagio. That's the other thing. I used to think adagio meant as slow as possible, but actually adagio kind of means at ease and at, at a certain tempo, at a certain slow tempo, it's no longer at ease. It sounds like you're struggling. So an adagio can often be a lot quicker than, than, than people think that it can be. And allegros can be a lot slower. Unless you have, you know, presto, then you're, then you got to go fast. Presto is fast. <laughs> as possible. As fast as you can play. Yeah. Now, Quantz goes through all of this in detail. He talks about in the manner of playing the Allegro, in the manner of playing the Adagio. One last point I want to make about tempo and relationships is that the subdivision of the sonata is usually the same in all of the movements. Do you agree on that? That pretty much you could divide the tempo of the first, second, and third movement somehow. Yeah, I guess, I mean, before they had a metronome, the, the heartbeat was kind of the pulse. And so in one movement, in a slow movement, for example, you might say, okay, I can, my, my, my heartbeat is the tempo of my fill in the blank, my quarter note or my eighth note or whatever. And then when we have our, Allegro, my heartbeat, perhaps I'm going to play two quarter notes per heartbeat. So yeah, there's some sort of a pulse, which is based on human physiology <laughs> that helps us to determine basic tempo relationships. And then from there, so if you're in four in the first movement and you're in six in the second movement, and then you're in two in the third movement, all that tempo is the same. They relate, right? Those tempi all relate to each other. They probably do relate, yes. Okay, because I find that true in the Mozart G major concerto. Yeah, yeah, you're right. 
Pam pam param pam param pam pam parim param 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 pam 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 para pa pa para para pa yes well hey that's great <laughs> i enjoy that relationship very much articulation styles The TI and the DI is something that we learned very early on. It helps so much as a young person to learn, oh, long notes, for lack of a better word, are DI Mm -hmm. and short notes are TI. It makes all the difference on the Baroque flute. So could you talk about why it makes such a difference on Baroque flute and how we can think about it on the modern flute? I think it matters on any flute. Um, When we have when we're trying to make something kind of articulate, which might be a li- in a livelier movement, one of our allegros or prestos, we use a clean, crisp T, T-I. And that applies to all flutes, I think. And then when you play something that's more slow, like in an adagio, we're going to articulate it much more gently with a D-I. Um, again, I, I do that on the silver flute too. I think you probably do too. <laughs> so that those the single tongue articulations, I think are relevant to all types of flutes. Where it gets a little bit weirder is when we get into double tonguing. Um, the types of articulations that we would use on the Baroque flute for double tonguing don't work as well on the modern flute just because of the, the column of air on the modern flute is, is kind of it used a lot of, a lot more air on the modern flute. And I don't think you can get the diddle, 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 diddle to come out quite as well. Maybe you can, actually. I, I don't know. That would be something for you to try. But we the modern flute players have these wonderful other types of articulations for double-tonguing, tucka, 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 and dugga, dugga, dugga. The main thing about um, single-tonguing or double-tonguing in, um, in the Quants book and in Baroque music in general is that they like variety. So... You want to try to not make everything sound exactly the same, no matter whether you're single tonguing or double tonguing. And and that applies to modern flute. Although when you think about how we practice on the modern flute, we practice our Tafanel and Gobert, and we work really hard to be able to play the same kind of articulation um, with the same kind of sound from the bottom of the flute to the top of the flute, just so that we can. But in a piece of music, um, a piece of Baroque music, that's not actually desirable it's more desirable to use a variety of articulations, but because you've practiced all different types of articulations on all the notes of all the range of the flute, you can pick your articulations and vary it. So that's really the, the kind of the, the main thing that Quantz talks about in his articulation stuff is just variety. In, in, every different, in different circumstances, just a variety of articulations. There's no note next to each other that's the same as what you're saying. Right, exactly. And he even also says, I, I always take this with a grain of salt, but he says, the notes should never touch each other. And that, and that obviously if there's a slur, the notes will touch each other. But if the notes are articulated, he is indicating that there's usually some sort of a little articulation silence between the notes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> is there a go-to spot for DI and TI, you know, in, in, or in different placements? Uh, should we just go looking for our own and wor- what works best for us? Well, Quantz talks in detail about the tip of the tongue behind the teeth and so on like that. But I think everybody's different and we know that. So definitely um, sitting in front of a mirror and practicing T, 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 trying to get the best 
tone that you can using that articulation and the same thing with the D is appropriate. Okay, here we go. Trills. Uh, (laughs) He has a chapter just devoted, right, to trills. Yep, yep. Are modern players that play Baroque music um, approaching all this in the wrong way if they don't go to the Quants book? For instance, there are some teachers that could make a blanket statement and say all notes come from above. Um, we, you and I both know that there are some rules, regulations, uh, speeds to trills. Uh, so could you just talk trills for a moment? Sure. Yeah, Quants says that... Um, well-executed trills can make a piece and poorly executed trills can break a piece, can ruin it. Um, So he says trills are worth spending time on and they're worth practicing, Um, which is one thing that maybe we don't do enough. I think in Tafanel Gobert, the final exercise is a trill exercise, but boy, I tell you what, trill exercises are really, really helpful um, so that you have control over your fingers. As far as playing in in Baroque music, Quantz tells us that if you're playing a slow movement and you come to a trill, that the trill should not be a fast trill. It should be a slower and more expressive trill, um, quite possibly with a nice long appoggiatura with a swell from the appoggiatura into the trill and then probably a termination to the trill, even if it's not written. And then in a lively movement, um, if it's a cadential trill, again, you might start it from the upper neighbor and play an appoggiatura, and then trill and probably play a termination. But there's also a difference between trills that are cadential at the end of a phrase and trills that are, we might say melodic trills. A lot of times you'll have trills scattered throughout a melody that don't have any cadential implications. And in those cases, the rules are a little different. You don't have to always start from the upper neighbor. You don't always have to put a little termination on it. Um, And if they're in a fast movement, you're probably going to play them pretty quickly. If they happen to be in a slow movement, although it's a little bit less common, I think, to have melodic trills in the middle, usually, well, maybe you could, I suppose, if you're ornamenting. Um, But in that case, you don't necessarily have to start the trill from the upper neighbor or put a termination on it. So it just depends on the context. Talking about context, is there such a thing as too much ornamentation? Quantz would say yes. (laughs) He would say that the right amount of ornamentation depends on um, good taste. But if you look at, for example, um, well, even his own chapter on ornamentation and you see the, the adagio that he ornaments, that's a lot of ornaments, um, more than more ornaments than I would think of when I'm trying to ornament something on the spot. And, you know, if you look at the Telemann methodical sonatas, the first movements each are ornamented and those ornaments, it's just dripping with ornamentation. Probably Quantz would say, yeah, you know, Telemann, that's too much. But <laughs> if you think of it as, you know, as a methodical, as a method for teaching us how to ornament, we don't necessarily have to use all the ornamentation. Right. So it's giving us ideas and then we can use what we have to let our good taste help us to decide how much ornamentation is the right amount. Very subjective, of course. Um, I, you know, I've, I've played with people before where I've thought, oh, would you just stop? Just stop. That's enough. <laughs> you know, too much ornamentation. I've lost track of the melody, which actually Quantz makes a reference to that. You should always be able to hear the melody. If you've lost the melody, then you've probably gone too far. 
He calls it the basic air. The air, yeah, the air, the, the air or the tune needs to be there. It needs to be present at all times. So let's talk about ornamentation, for example, in the repeated section of the Vivaldi Piccolo Concerto. How much is too much? Do you hear too much? You know, for instance, I love some of the published publications out there. Um, would you recommend student making their own ornaments, learning like Telemann, uh, learning from these editions and then going off and doing their, their own? Sure, absolutely. It's a great idea to take a slow movement that you need to ornament and look at the sources, look, look at the suggestions that Quantz gives us and look at the suggestions that Telemann gives us um, and ev even other um, ornament ideas from the Vivaldi time. There are other people wrote down what, what people did back then. So you could look at stuff like that and just get ideas and you can try to write your own ornamentation, maybe even write three or four different versions of it and pick what sounds the best to you and what works the best. And speaking of composing, what about writing your own cadenzas? Uh, how long is too long? How elaborate are we to be? For instance, in, if there's a fermata in anything Baroque or classical, we know that means cadenza. It does, yes. Well, Quantz argues against making the cadenzas too long. He says that it should be something you can do in one breath. So that kind of narrows things down a little bit. When you think about a Mozart concerto, and normally you come to the fermata and then the flute player plays basically an entire other piece during, <laughs> during the cadenza time. That's, that's different. Um, but in the Baroque period, the cadenza was just a moment for the performer to really just shine briefly. <laughs> so really it's just, it's just in one breath. Where can we learn to write a cadenza? Would it be Betty Bang Mather's book? Yeah, that's helpful. And actually, Quantz talks about cadenzas, too. He, he talks about ideas for cadenzas. Um, so, yeah, those are all those are both good sources. Everyone is so afraid. <laughs> but there's a method. For instance, do you know that if you think of the right hand of the piano part or the orchestra part, the violin part, think of the violin part in the Mozart G major with all those G arpeggios. We don't play that. So I start a cadenza with that. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a cadenza is just, it, it's an opportunity to take some of the music that you've either played or that somebody has played and then play around with it and do something creative with it. Exactly. Chamber music, everybody has a, an equal role, right? So if you're playing a Mozart flute quartet, you basically are like, it's like you're playing in a string quartet, but you've taken over the first violin part. So you get to be as strong as everybody else. So you, you lead the group. In fact, the first violin player would lead a string quartet so the flute can lead in the Mozart flute quartets. And if it's a trio sonata, you know, flute and oboe and continuo or whatever, the, the two upper voices are completely equal. And the third voice, which would be the harpsichord slash continuo, possibly with a cello or bassoon playing along, that's also equal. So I think when it's chamber music, everybody gets to play out. And you back off when somebody else has the tune, especially there's a lot of contrapuntal music in, in Baroque music. And if you're playing a type of fugue and you have the subject, you play it out. And if you have sort of the counter subject and somebody else is playing the, the subject, you back off and get out of the way. So it's a conversation really, um, more than 
everybody talking at once. It's a conversation. It is. And I find the right hand of the piano or the harpsichord in some of the Bach sonatas is just a glorified trio sonata. So I play along with them in learning Bach flute sonatas. Absolutely. There's a recording of um, the musical offering trio sonata done as a flute sonata. The flute plays the flute line and the keyboard player who plays the forte piano plays the violin part with the right hand and the bass part with the left hand. So no chords, it's just the three voices. And it's incredible because you can really hear everything and it's not muddied up with all those incredibly dense chords. It's amazing. Is your Baroque flute in the orchestra different from your modern flute playing in the orchestra? Well, oftentimes when I'm playing Baroque flute in an orchestra, um, I'm either playing, like for example, the, the B minor orchestral suite, I'm, I'm actually a soloist. So even though I'm just part of the group, I'm also a soloist. So obviously when I'm a soloist, I play out as much as I possibly can, but I also try to blend with the strings. Um, oftentimes when I'm playing modern flute, for example, I play with the Cleveland Pops pretty often. And in that case, I'm trying to blend with the winds, unless I happen to have a solo, in which case I'm blasting as loud as I can. But the rest of the time, I'm just trying to blend with the woodwinds. Um, and it's not that I don't try to blend with the winds if I'm playing uh, in Apollo's Fire, in a, in, a, in a Baroque orchestra, of course, I try to blend with everybody, but oftentimes those, those parts are more soloistic. So I have to play out. How come my flutists sound so good when they start learning the Baroque flute? They come back and they play everything better. What is it that you do to my students at Michigan? You sprinkle fairy dust on them. They, they, and, and the other thing is that they all want to learn the Baroque flute now. So could you tell me what's the big takeaway that they're getting from this playing Baroque flute in their modern playing? I, I almost think of the Baroque flute as kind of an extended techniques instrument. Um, so if you're a modern player and you're learning to play the Baroque flute, you find that you have to do all kinds of crazy things in order to just sound good on the Baroque flute. Um, we have certain notes on the Baroque flute, for example, G sharp, which is a very veiled, delicate note, and you can't play with very much air. You can't blow it as hard as a G, for example. You have to back your air off and you have to focus with your lips as much as possible to make it even sound like a note. So it doesn't sound like a kind of little train whistle. So you have to do things to play the Baroque flute and sound good. Not that you can't do those on the modern flute, but that you don't have to do them on the modern flute because the modern flute is just designed. It's so well designed that you don't have to do those weird things. So basically what on the Baroque flute, what we're trying to do is sound good on all, as many notes as we can, knowing that we have bad notes, trying to even it out so that it sounds all pretty nice but not even, not equal. We're not trying to make everything sound the same. We're just trying to make it all sound nice. So I find with the Baroque flute, I have to do all kinds of crazy things with my mouth, with my lips, with the air, with angle of the angle of the air, even with my fingers that I never had to do on the modern flute. It just wasn't necessary because the modern flute is designed completely differently. So um, I think it does make a person play the flute better. We don't have a sponsor for our podcast, so you can go ahead and recommend where someone can buy a nice beginner Baroque flute. If you don't want to spend a lot of money, Aulos makes two different plastic Baroque flutes, an A441 
that's I think a copy of a Stainsby or something. And then there's an A415 one that's a copy of maybe a Rottenberg. I can't remember. They're $500 or less. And they're really reliable because they're plastic and they sound nice. If you're a good flute player and you get a flute like that, you're going to outgrow it really fast. So you might as well, instead of spending five or six hundred dollars, just spend two thousand dollars and buy a flute, a wooden flute made by one of the better flute builders. And I can name a name if you want. Sure. Give us give us some give us your recommendation. Okay. Well, my favorite flute builder is Martin Venner, who lives in Zingen, Germany. And basically all the flutes that I own now are built by Martin Venner. I've played lots of flutes by different builders and there are other good builders as well, but his flutes have been for me really consistently fantastic. And he builds lots of different models. And occasionally, if you're lucky, you might be able to find a Martin Venner broke flute, a used instrument. But um, if you order one from him, it's, it's not a real, it's not a terrible weight. It might be a year or something like that. And they're just not that expensive. So um, you can start out with a plastic flute to play on while your Venner flute is being built. And then you can sell your plastic one once you get the, the wooden one. <laughs> and what happens if someone comes across a, an old Baroque flute and says, hey, you know, I'm selling this. Is there a used market for these instruments? Uh, do you need to be aware when you're buying a used instrument? Yeah, make sure you try it. A, a lot of old instruments, <laughs> yeah, a lot of old ones um, are really cool, but they don't actually work. Um, that's the problem. So, and the problem is also if you have a builder who's no longer building, but they built a really nice flute 45 years ago, and that flute's, flute player or flute builder is not building anymore, you can't send it back to that person to have them re-ream it or make it better. That you know, if it's not working very well, you can take it to a flute repairman and they can do the best they can with it, but it may never be a very good flute anymore. I see. Yeah. I just bought my first antique. I, I had never bought an antique flute in my life because I just sort of feel like it's a can of worms to even go near them. But I, I saw a Drouet flute from 1820 available and it was at a steel, so I bought it. And, and it has eight keys. And it came, when it arrived, I played on it for about 20 minutes and I loved it. And then the next day, every crack that was in it had opened and it was no longer playable. So I sent it away and had it all repaired and I got it back. And it's just fantastic. I'm playing Drouet Etudes on a Drouet flute. My jaw is dropped. It's so cool. I'll show it to you when I see you. You'll love it. Yeah, I'm not sure who owned it before me. Uh, I'm sure it had been played, but of course it traveled from England um, you know, for a, a good week. And it wasn't necessarily in very stable humidity situations. And yeah, it, it, it just, it was pretty unhappy, but now it's very happy and it's beautiful. I'm happy for you. All <laughs> of the listeners, Porter Flute Potter, so happy for you and your new antique flute. Yeah. Drew A. Wow. What color is it? It's black. I can show it to you. It's right. Over okay. There. I'll go get it. Okay. In fact, I was just playing on it just before before we started up. Can you play on it now? Sure. It's, I don't know if you can see it. It's got these beautiful um, silver rings that are um, with little gold, or what do you call them, roses. And there's a little plate on there that says something like, no flute is a genuine flute by Drouet unless it has this on here put on by my hand. <laughs> so it's very cool. Oh my so goodness. So it has a G sharp key, 
which is nice. And it has a B flat key. So you finger an A and you hit that and you got a B flat. And then it has two F keys. So you finger an F and you push the little key, you get the little F natural. And you can also finger an F and push the long key and that gives you the other F. See that? Mm -hmm. And then we have our E flat key like normal and a C and C sharp key. Is that all? Oh, and there's a C key also. So you finger a B and a, this long key gives you a, a C natural like. We have a real G sharp. <laughs> now, one thing that happened though, when they started adding these keys is the G sharp is the G sharp. So we've, we've gotten rid of G sharp versus A flat. There's not a different fingering. Same thing with you know F sharp versus G flat. They're, they don't exist anymore by the time you get flutes like this. So if you wanted to make a difference, you have to do it by lipping the notes up and down. And I, I remember using a flute like this in Apollo's Fire in a Beethoven symphony. And I played the B flat using the B flat key. And the conductor said, uh, could you bring that B flat up? Because now flats are sharper than sharps. And could you bring your B flat up? And I was like, but I'm using the B flat. Oh. <laughs> so I had to play a higher B flat where, where B flat really should be. One problem with the keys is it, it kind of eliminates some of the, well, it, it makes everything in harmonic. It, it eliminates the differences between the sharps and the flats. Fascinating. Thanks for showing us. Sure. Not everybody at this time in Germany thought the same way. So for example, at Frederick the Great's court, we had quants and like in two rooms over, we have Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, who also wrote a big book. And the two books do not agree about everything. You know, Quantz says, doesn't matter what kind of a pagetura um, is written there, you'll play it this way. And Carl Philip says, well, in my music, if I want you to play um, a long appoggiatura, I'll write the note value out for you. So they didn't agree about everything, but Quantz is, um, what would you say, worldly enough that he knew what people were doing in France. He knew what they were doing in Germany, what they were doing in Italy, and he refers to all that there. So he at least, he was aware of it. And he knows that other people did things a little differently. So we have to sometimes take some of what he says with a grain of salt because it's not, it's not relevant to every single piece of music that we come across, but it's relevant in some ways to most, most pieces of Baroque music. Okay, so universal relevancy, it, it is. CPE, perhaps we need to read a chapter out of CPE, but I'll leave that to you. Essay on the True Art of Keyboard Playing, yes by CPE Bach is maybe a book we should explore. This, just like the Quants book, only part of the Quants book is about how to play the flute. The rest of it is how to play music. And the same thing for CPE Bach. He has a little section about, well, a big section about how to play the keyboard instruments and then more stuff about how to play music. Exactly, Kathy. I think we really should read a chapter out of that as well. Well, I just want to thank you for being on Porter Flute Pod and embracing the project Quants Quickies. It's trying to get the Quants information out to you in its original style. I leave out some of the things he tells the bassoonists and the oboists and the other wind players. And I just kind of try and, and read. And then uh, Kathy, you play the examples. And I think that's just a, 
a taste of knowledge and, and wonderful, you know, clarity for someone to hear it in that pitch and in the right style. So thank you for joining me for Quant's Quickies. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being in Porter Flute Pod today, Kathy. We learned and confirmed so very much. I'm so happy my students can learn from you. I can't wait to collaborate on the chapter on ornaments when you'll include continuo in your examples as I read the complicated English translation. Join us next time in Porter Flute Pod when I host another friend cast. This time, the friendship goes very, very, very deep. Christina Smith, Principal Flute of Atlanta Symphony Flute Sister, will be with me. We've had many formative experiences in the ASO, and we'll discuss the musical ones, as well as her love of sewing and seeing very old flutes restored so that she can put life back into them with her amazing music making. You'll find me at my websites, amyporter.com and porterflute.com. And on social media, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, I'm Porterflute. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.